0: Hey, folks, welcome to the Georgia Field Hunting Podcast, episode 35. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, here with co-host Robert Nelson. And today we're going to mix things up a little bit, um, cover a topic that I think um, many of you will be able to uh, relate to or hopefully put to use. Uh, it's kind of one that you'll hear us talk about in the podcast. It's, it's uh, doing it a little bit selfishly. Uh, because it's all on planning your first Western elk hunt, and that's something that Robert and I have started to talk about, and kind of put some plans into motion. that something we want to do here in the the not too distant future. So we thought it'd be great to have somebody on that has uh, successfully done so, and we definitely found the the right guy for that. We'll be talking to Mariah Bogus. Uh, he's he's a wildlife biologist, uh, co host of Hunting the Land podcast, but he has also Planned um, just in the last two years, uh, two years ago, he went on his first elk hunt and uh, killed a monster of a bull and then went back this year and killed another bull. And uh, yeah, just DIY public land hunting. And so we, we got him on here to pick his brain. And man, this thing, um, as Robert can attest to, <laughs> uh, we ended up diving way deeper than we had, uh, I guess, planned, really. And it went so long, uh, we were a good hour in uh, to the conversation and e- didn't even get into the actual scouting and hunting strategy. So, this is uh, actually it's going to end up being a two-parter. So, today we're covering more of the basics as far as just uh, planning your hunt, the gear you'll need, kind of a, what budget to expect. Just, man, a lot of deep dive into um Again, just planning your first elk hunt. And I know Robert and I talked about we were both writing notes the whole time. Uh, I got a page of notes just from talking to Mariah. Um, oh, stuff yeah. that I know that I'll be able to put to use as as we start to plan our first elk hunt. So um, good stuff, man. I hope I hope you guys will enjoy this. Um, even if, you know, maybe it's not elk hunt on your list, but any kind of Western hunt, um, this same, this information. Uh, you'll be able to apply it to, to plan in any kind of Western hunt. So hopefully you'll stick around and check it out.
1: Um, what do we need to cover before we hop on the phone with Mariah, Robert? Yeah, before I dive into anything, Brian, I do want to say, just like you mentioned, this is going to be a two-part episode. So this is going to be our first split episode where we're going to do back-to-back weeks with the same guests, but y'all don't tune out on this first one because I know as much as everybody else and I do when I listen to podcasts, I like to hear the scouting and the map scouting and, you know, part of the hunt. But the stuff that Mariah dives into with the gear and what you need to take and what you need and what you don't need, you know, and water, food, the clothing, everything he goes over is pretty mind blowing actually. Cause I was sitting there and he was naming off stuff that I had never even thought of. Yeah. So th- there's a lot of great information to be taken from this episode. So don't, don't tune out just yet. Go ahead and give it a listen. And then, uh, if part two is anything like part one, these next two episodes are going to be absolute bangers because it's just a ton of information. That's just really, really good. And I really enjoyed talking with Mariah last night. So, um, the two things I'm going to mention, after that is the Onyx discount, as always. If you're looking for a good mapping app, uh, Onyx has a good one that you can go out and use our promo code GAField, and that's G-A-A-F-I-E-L-D at onyxmaps.com, and that will save you 20% off any membership. And also, if you like what we're doing and you'd like to support us any, any other way, you can visit us at patreon.com backslash Georgia Affield and you can go there. We have a uh, tiers for small monthly donations, and that's another way you can support us. And we would really appreciate anybody that was willing enough to go out and do that. So, um, that's all I got for tonight, Brian. All right, let's
0: go ahead and hop on the phone here with Mariah and, uh, yeah, kick this thing off. All right, guys, I'm on the line with Mariah Bogus. Uh, Mariah, how you doing? I'm doing good guys. Nice to talk to you. It's a busy time of year for all of us, isn't it? (laughs) Oh yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. I I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, yeah, get on here and talk to us a little bit. I know you've had a a busy weekend. So, uh, like I said, just appreciate you carving, carving that time out to, uh, you know, share some knowledge with our, our listeners. Not
2: a problem. I'm I'm always happy to talk deer, deer, (laughs) any kind of hunting. And, uh, I hadn't been able to go the last three or four days, but i tell you, I've been seeing so many dead deer and, and oh seeing them out gosh. in the field, driving all back this afternoon and seeing them out in the field. So I, I think I've, I think I, I carved out like four or five hours tomorrow morning and fingers crossed makes make something there you, happen.
1: There like, you go. There you go. Hey, I understand. I, I've been seeing a lot of dead ones too, and I've been hunting myself, so. And, uh, just not seeing them in front of me.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been like at, at deer processors and stuff and them
1: coming in, there's, you know,
2: nice bucks and i am talking to guys. I'm like, man, you know, was he pacing or cruising? And, and, uh, you know, I kind of rubbing it in my, just salt my own wound there. Just trying to, you know, hearing all the stories. <laughs> I, I enjoy hearing it. Even, you know, sometimes you have to live vicariously through others. And unfortunately, Sometimes with deer hunting, that's it. And and that reminds me like with Brian over here, you know, it's all tagged out and everything. I keep seeing pictures of Brian's shooting deer and I'm like, man, I wish I was hunting. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun, to, it's fun to see the other people having success.
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. But man, I t- even being tagged out, it still hurts every day. Uh, this, particularly this time of year, man, it hurts. <laughs> not being able to get into the woods. Like you said, seeing all these pictures on Facebook and social media and uh yeah, just, man, it's just even driving now, you know, it's just the the sightings in general have picked up. The trail camera traffic has picked up. It's just, uh, man, it's a good time to be in the woods right now for sure. And it hurts yeah. when you're not.
2: <laughs> it does. And especially right now with the rut, because I always feel like I'm just I feel like every hour that's daylight, I'm not in the woods during the rut is just an hour. You know, it's like the golden hour. Yeah, yeah. They're not comparable to the rest of the the, the year. So that's right.
0: Impressive. That's right. But yeah, for, for the listeners, I hey, rise a, uh, you know, he's a wildlife biologist and he's a co-host of, of hunt the land podcast. So be sure to to check that out. And we'll, we'll talk a little more about that at the, at the end of the podcast. But um, you know, Mariah is also a dedicated DIY public land hunter, and that's kind of why we, we brought him on here today, uh, to talk about planning your first kind of DIY elk hunt out West. Um, or, I mean, this could apply to really any kind of Western hunt, but we're going to talk specifically about elk. Um, and, and we brought him on, cause, uh, Mariah has not only, you know, planned and executed two, uh, DIY elk hunts in the last two years, but he's managed to knock down a great bull on each of those two hunts. And that's, uh, that's pretty phenomenal. considering, uh, I think the overall elk harvest rate out West is, I don't know, somewhere around 15%. You know, takes on average about seven years to to kill you an elk, or you kill one every seven years, and and Mariah's knocked down two in two years. So, uh, we figure you'd be a good guy to have on, and and like I mentioned before we start recording, it's kind of a a little bit selfish on mine and Robert's part because we're. uh we're kind of hoping to do an elk hunt here before too long. Um, that's one thing I have never chased. And so uh yeah, we kind of selfishly want to get you on here and pick your brain for ourselves <laughs> and, and hopefully, you know, somebody else can learn from it too. <laughs> but but yeah, yeah absolutely. I, yeah. But I, I thought we'd just get started. Um, it, maybe you can tell us a little bit about kind of what prompted you to to plan this first your first elk hunt. Well, I,
2: I gotta be honest. So I grew up in North Carolina. And I never really, like growing up, I always dreamed of hunting out West. Like I know a lot of guys do, but I never had a plan to do it. It was always something just I kind of thought, you know, down the road someday I'll get to do that. And really what brought me to it was shed hunting. It was kind of actually what has all kind of propelled me forward through deer hunting has been my interest in shed hunting. And um, a buddy of mine two years ago, a little over two years ago, uh, spring of 2018, was telling me he had a friend out in Nevada that you know he was like we can go out there and stay at his place and go shed hunt. So he went out there, flew out there, and this was kind of my end to the west. I guess this was this trip. that was like well we'll be staying at somebody's house and we went and shed hunting and found a bunch of mule deer sheds and it just got under my skin. I was like man you know that was just so so much fun and how can we do that more? So from that that was kind of like that was the 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 my first dose of it that really got me wanting to go out west. So after that, my buddy Kyle and I, that I was talking about there, we went out and did uh, a archery hunt for, for mule deer in Arizona, uh, over the counter archery tag, and uh, had a shot fired at a mule deer that missed, and another missed opportunity at a coos deer. And, and basically that hunt was our first Western hunt for both of us, and we were camping, Um we were out there for, I think, eight or nine days camping and hunting out west. And so it was kind of, again, kind of like tiptoeing into the water, not jumping in head first, but building that confidence that we could actually go out and and have some kind of success. And uh, then the spring after that, we went out to Colorado and went shed hunting again. And I found my first elk shed, which was a really big deal for me, something I've always wanted to do. And we spent you know a couple of days just looking for elk sheds and didn't have much luck, but I guess what the the outcome of that was a couple things. Learned a little bit about elk sign, you know, where we're looking for it and where we were finding elk sign. And then the other thing was just again building that confidence to go out west, you know, in, in in this case a road trip and camp from the car, walk and shed hunt, just cook your meals there at the car and hunt like that. And so you know, in the shed hunting way, and and, and that has really that just built my confidence early on so much in traveling. Cause it's, you know, it's a big deal to go out West and it takes, you know, you're you're putting money on the line, you're going, you're going to be really far away from home. There's all these new things. And the more of those things that you can become familiar with or comfortable with, I think the more chance you are to, to actually take advantage of an opportunity or seek out an opportunity and actually be successful and have the confidence to do it. So that kind of got me to the spring of, of uh i guess it would have been 2019 last year and me and a couple of friends throwing around the idea that we want to go elk hunting and and we wanted to do this you know we've all talked about it but about wanting to go but after going shed hunting for him and finding that one shed i was like i've got to go elk hunting this isn't just i want to go i've got to do it like you know what's the difference between going out and shed hunting the big difference is you're buying a tag right that's the that's the that's kind of the cool thing that's why i I actually have encouraged a lot of people that are into shed hunting to go out west and do it because it's such a free activity all you got is the travel and and invested and you can have so much fun it's great weather you get to explore places and kind of get the feel for the land in our case to help build some confidence so uh, based on that in 2019 we started looking around you know for for opportunities and um and so the first elk hunt was going to be over the counter because none of us had any tags, any any, um, any preference points or bonus points in any state. We hadn't really been planning forward for that. So obviously, you know, there's some states that come to mind. I don't know how much you guys want to get into this, but we can maybe kind of hit at a broad level here.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, keep
2: going. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the, the states that you know, the big states that are over the counter, right? They're they're Colorado, Idaho. Montana-ish, it's really a draw, but pretty easy to draw. But so really it's the the true ones are are Colorado, Idaho, Utah, Washington, and Oregon. And Washington and Oregon for for an Eastern guy are really far away. And the success rates, if you're looking at those units are kind of lower. I wouldn't mind doing it sometime, but um, their success rates are generally lower. And then they got Roosevelt elk on the West coast and that kind of hunting looks super tough. Um, especially being from the East that, that, um, that rainforest type of hunting for Roosevelt elk. So those two States were kind of out for us. You know, we we're just kind of playing just elimination here. So Washington and Oregon were out too far of a drive from Mississippi where we were <laughs> heading out from. But then the other ones were, you know, obviously re- the obvious ones are Idaho, Colorado, or Utah. And this is basically just how we decided. And, uh, we had this time frame that we could go and hunt which was October 5th through the 15th I think it's the time that we had blocked out um so something like that 10 days and they didn't line up with Colorado seasons so Colorado over the counter rifle seasons which I guess I should preface this with with that we we're trying to hunt a rifle and and I don't know, uh Brian or Robert what you, you guys planned are plans are as far as an elk experience. And everyone has a different idea. Everyone, you know, I would love to go and hunt during the rut and have one bugling at me, like, you know, right in my face and call it in that whole experience. And someday I hope to do that. In fact, I might try to do that next year or the year after, you know, my next time I go. But but starting out, and I'm a big bow hunter, like I love to bow hunt, and I'm I'm pretty confident with my bow. However, I, I kind of felt like I would have better odds of being successful or at least a lot more confidence in myself going out there with a rifle the first time or two. And at the end of the day, I just wanted to kill an elk, right? I mean, that was, I had never eaten elk, had never, you know, it, it only seemed like three or four in my life at that point. <laughs> I just wanted to kill an elk. So, so we were looking. So, you know, when we were looking at states, we we're looking just at the states I had over the counter rifle and uh and then those seasons so like i said colorado was out cuz it's the second and third season that is over the counter the over the counter rifle which is mid to late october and those are pretty cold hunts so the other options left for us were idaho and utah and i'll be honest like we looked at idaho there was about two two or three units that were open that time frame for a rifle hunt and they were in the greater yellowstone ecosystem there <laughs> If you look at them on on X in like the hybrid mode or topo mode, it makes your legs tired just sitting on the couch. I mean, you look (laughs) at this; it's going to just chew me up and spit me out. And a grizzly bear might do that too. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) That was my thought when you said Yellowstone. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) grizzly. Yeah, it's a wild part. It's like near the Frank Church Wilderness and all that. It's a wild part of the country. And being from the east my, you know, limited experience in really cold temperatures and mountains and snow. And, you know, we didn't, we weren't equipped to, to deal with snow. We were, we were basically like, all right, Utah's out. Or, I mean, Idaho's out. We're not going that far up north. So that left Utah. So we, we settled on Utah. And, and the deal with Utah, I'm going to specifics here a little bit more just because I'm kind of familiar with it, is that they sell 15,000 general bull tags, any bull tags, and then 15,000 spike tags. So the way they have their state blocked up is they have quality units and in those quality units, it'll take, you know, I don't know, eight, 10, 20 years to draw a a mature bull tag. Or they also allow you to shoot a spike in those units with these, these over-the-counter spike tags. So they sell 15,000 of those for these limited entry units. And then the rest of the units are these general season units. And that's where you can use the, any bull tag. And they sell also 15,000 of those any bull tags. And that's what we bought. And those, those general season units where you can use these any bull tags, you can shoot anything, you know, from a spike up. Um, they get a lot of pressure and they're generally a little bit higher in a little bit higher demand. Those tags are. So in 2019, we bought that tag, I think a month after they went on sale and there was still a few thousand left of those 15,000 in. Very stark comparison this year, 2020, those sold out the day they went on sale. So they were over the counter, but at least in the world of of coronavirus this year, they were sold out the day of. Um, Everybody was wanting to get out and hunt, I think. And so that's something to keep in mind. We might see, you know, big increases in the amount of hunters out in areas like that. But at any rate. They all seen that bull you killed. (laughs) (laughs) went <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> when bought tags. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um well yeah, yeah, it, it maybe so. But um <laughs> see, well we have a mutual friend that Brian, you and I that, that went out and, and and killed a bull again this year and kind of proved that the it's a, a pretty good area, but um <laughs> hate there. So anyway, so last last year in twenty nineteen, um we we bought our tags in I think July. And so our hunt started October 5th and it's like a 10 day hunt. So we had basically all 10 days planned out. And, and as far as the planning, I'll just, I'll just stop here with the planning, but you know, we had to choose a unit. So looking at units for a over-the-counter tag like that, there's different things you want to balance out, right? It's like the opportunity versus hunters and I'm the kind of guy that always is like, Oh, there's got to be some little nugget tucked away that people overlook. You know, you can sit and punch the numbers and find it. So I spent an unhealthy amount of time that year in grad school when I was in my office, you know, quote unquote working on Onyx looking at units and looking at statistics in those units. (laughs) And I, you know, I looked at, there was two that stood out to me and the problem with there. So the problem with one of them was all the public was lower elevation from like 8,000 down, and then the peaks of the mountains were private, which is kind of a flip-flop of what you see across about all the West. But it had these weird mountaintop plateaus that were somewhat developed, and, and that was all private. And doing some reading and research, I found that the elk were generally that time of year, that tag, haven't moved out of that high country yet down into the public. So that can be a limitation of that tag. So even though that unit had pretty good success rates and a lot of public land, we ended up shying away from it for that reason. And, and I think, you know, the explanation there would be there's pretty good success rates because a lot of those bulls are probably getting shot on private land, which we did not have access to. Right. And then the other unit I looked at had pretty good success rates, but a low harvest. And then again, there were some alfalfa fields and stuff on the edge of it, and I ended up actually talking to the biologists out there, which I would I would encourage anyone that is putting all the time and investment into going out, you know, elk hunting to talk to the wildlife biologists, especially if you're looking at different units. And they can kind of, you know, whether or not how helpful they want to be, they can help you out a lot if they want to to tell you some information. And he basically was telling me how. You know, the elk spent a lot of time on that private and those alfalfa fields and, in that kind of deal. So I kind of ruled out these two units for that reason. Um, and it's something I've, I've noticed looking at over the counter tags in units is that the units, you might find a unit that's like a 30 or 40% success rate and uh, success rate. And you think, you know, this is a great unit, but you really got to look at the percentage of private and public. Cause a lot of times that's because there's a lot of, of, of private in that unit right um so anyway I, I i've been rambling for a little bit here that's, <laughs> no, that's all right <laughs> um, it's all good that's, that, yeah that's kind of the process we're using and and, and uh and so yeah the, the unit we end up selling on is like one of the biggest in the state and has the biggest elk harvest in the state and also the biggest um number of hunters you know good figure in the state, and margin, you know, average success rate is like a fourteen or fifteen percent success rate, which is um, pretty average for that tag across the across the whole state. And we basically settled on it just because we knew there was out there, and there's another clue that you know someone could use if you're looking and trying to figure out population and whether or not there's many animals. I did some reading; they were estimated. Three or 4,000 head over their target population in that unit just from doing aerial surveys. So, because of that, they were allowing cow harvest. So, you could buy a cow tag to be used in this particular unit if you had already bought a bull tag. So, that's actually what I ended up doing. But that kind of helped us choose this unit because we're like, we knew that there was a high deer or a high
0: elk population there. Yeah. So, basically, yeah, I I think. Which in your guys' case, y'all actually, you know, started planning this the year of. But I think, you know, what you're what you're telling us there uh, just goes to show that the sooner you can start planning one of these hunts, uh, the better off you'll be, because there is a lot to dig into. And uh, as far as, like you said, starting with just finding out what state you want to hunt, you know, and based on how soon you want to hunt. Um, the the odds of of being chosen in any given unit of a particular state and uh, yeah just a lot of a lot of kind of stats to to wade through there um, bef- before making yeah. a choice
2: yeah there is and and you know we were just kind of I mean just just now we've been talking over the counter options but um you know then there's you get into the whole the tag drawing process which I think it's a great way to be prepared. If you, if you anticipate going hunting in the, the next handful of years, there's some things you can do, um, to, to get prepared for that. And if you want, we can talk about that now. I don't know if y'all want to talk, um, tactics any. I don't know how much I can weigh in on that. I can tell you <laughs> what worked once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. it works twice. We definitely want to get into that too at, you know, a little, a little later on, but, uh, and I, I do before we, dive in really any further i just want to kind of throw out i know for a lot of folks and and really including myself you know elk an elk a western elk hunt is kind of like a a bucket list item you know something i think a lot of guys dream about but there's so many people that think it's just out of reach um yeah or or a western hunt in general and i have an elk hunting but i've been out west a couple times for antelope once for mule deer and man like you said it, it does it gets in your blood. And you just want to go back. I mean, I, I'd go back every year if I could, um, just man, there's something about it. It's just completely different. But, uh, you know, saying all that, I, I just want to make the point that it, this is doable for anybody. I mean, these hunts, wh- what would you, what would you say would be, and, and I know elk's going to be a little higher cause just the the tag is the, one of the biggest, you know, I, one of the biggest expenses when it comes to an elk hunt, but but what would you say is a realistic budget for a guy, you know, from the South planning in his first DIY elk hunt out, out West? I think, um,
2: so gear would be a, a, a separate topic. So if we set right. gear aside, if we, yeah. So if we don't talk about gear, if we were just talking travel. First off, I would highly recommend going with a friend. So you have at least some help, someone to travel with, someone else to hunt with So. Say there's two of you, two or three of you. Which every time I've gone out west, I, there's been two to four of us, and that's shed hunting or or hunting hunting. I think round trip, which I have a pretty cost efficient car. I don't have a truck. I've got a like a um, a little uh, Rav Four, so it gets decent mileage, about 25 miles a gallon. We have done round trips for less than eighty dollars a person, and then. You know, when there's only a couple of us, maybe the the bill at the end is 150 or 160 bucks. I'm talking just gas. So right. the, the way I look at the cost is, gas is definitely the cost of the trip. Food, I might spend a little bit more on food, but at the end of the day, I got to eat no matter where I'm at. Right. So I, I spend a little bit more on backpacking food, but it, let's say that's a cost of you know an extra 30 bucks for the time I'm there. So say we're going with that higher gas price, that's 200 bucks right there. Then wherever I go out there, we've always camped except that first time out there when we stayed with a friend. So we've always camped. And so that's essentially cheap aside from the gear cost. So really you're looking at something about 200 bucks. If you're driving 200 bucks and then your tag price. So for Utah last year, that was like $500. It was about a $700 trip. Um, their tag prices actually went up this year, but for most elk tags, you're looking at about 700 bucks. So, you know, with that estimate, you're around a $900 mark, you throw an extra hundred dollars in there for a cushion, a thousand bucks. If you want to do it real cost efficiently, you can do a trip like that easily for a thousand bucks. Really. The biggest thing is the time off, you know, right? and what we're talking about. I mean, you're hunting public land. There's, there's really no cost except for travel and the legality of being there to hunt, which is why I, why I've enjoyed shed hunting is because it's just that anywhere from $75 to $150 bill to, to drive out there and back. And I get to go experience it, you know, just like a, any other kind of vacation like that. But it, God, it's so cheap. I just, <laughs> I don't think most people realize it, which is why. Um, I always try to encourage people when I talk to them that, you know, when people say they want to go elk hunting is to just go ahead and give it a shot. Because biggest thing is like, as long as you're, as long as you're not afraid to fail, then it you don't have anything to lose. Like it, I've never gone out there and and regretted going like every single time. It's it's an experience of a lifetime, you know, it it's worth the cost associated with it. So I think for the average guy, you know, if, if someone's starting from scratch, I think realistically, we say a thousand bucks for the cost of their trip. That's the one-time cost, and then they probably already got a deer rifle they can use. I would say they're going to need to spend at least another five hundred to seven hundred dollars on buy-in cost into gear, just to get some standardized gear that will make their life easier, or at least you know well they'll be well functioning in the in the wilderness or wherever they're hunting. So I think you know that first time you're looking at you know, maybe 1500 to $2,000. But that price can come down once you've invested in gear. And that's, you know, that's something that to keep in mind is that gear cost. And kind of to your point, Brian, I mean, anybody can make this happen. I mean, look, myself, I did this as a very poor graduate student. <laughs> I did it with other graduate students, undergrads, like, like we're not making much money at all. Like we're... <laughs> Barely scraping by, but you can, you can save up a little money to make this happen. It just depends on how you live your life, right? And how much money you spend and, and if you can save up that amount of money, um, for a trip like this. So I, I think it's a hundred percent doable if people can get the time off to go. It's, it, it's not that, it's not that tough. It's just making yourself go the first time. Cause if you go the first time, you're going to go back a lot of times. So oh, I, yeah. I encourage you to go <laughs> as quickly as possible so that you can keep going back
1: yeah and i think it's based off what you're saying it's pretty affordable especially if you're doing a planned hunt like you're not just going out on a whim you're just kind of planning it for the next couple years and you can save a couple hundred bucks each year you know leading up to that hunt and then by the time the hunt rolls around you know you've got the money for the tag and the gas and the food and all that so i think that's very affordable but before we really dive deep into the planning and the hunting and all that Mariah, i'm just kind of curious you've talked a lot uh, the last couple of minutes here about the gear you're taking out there. Can you just touch on what kind of gear you bought and what you felt like it was efficient to take out there that you needed?
2: Yeah. I think the, uh, there's a
1: couple things I would say are hundred percent
2: essential. And then there's other things that will make your life easier. And I would eventually invest in, but if I was to, if I was to line out the things to get before you go, I would buy a good sleeping bag and a good backpack. Like those two, really those two things, everyone has a pair of boots that they can live with. Like it's nice to have good boots and that's definitely an investment you eventually want to make. Um, But you can get by with a decent pair of boots. And you know, that's that's one thing a lot of people listen and, and uh, I eventually did invest in some decent boots. But the first couple of times I just went with cheaper like Irish setters I got for, I think 30 bucks at Ganner Mountain and they worked, you know, but the first two times I went out there, well, actually the first time we went to Arizona and it it was getting down to about 20 degrees at night and it's in the desert. So it's just dry air and cold, cold. Didn't have a good sleeping bag. And I I took the approach of I'm just going to bundle up and, you know, I had this decent Walmart special kind of sleeping bag and we're (laughs) we're just going to we're just going to power through right you know it's, it's really easy when you're sitting at home to be to, to be like the uh the crusader you're like oh it doesn't matter i won't let anything stop me we're going to make this happen and then <laughs> get through your. you get about midnight your first night and you're a thousand miles from home and you're starting to think about how crazy this is and it can play with your head so uh having the right gear is important um but after that trip we froze and we froze and we froze and we and we made it through but I, I invested in a good sleeping bag. Uh, a down doesn't have to be down. In fact, down is actually not the best if you're in a kind of rainy areas or a place with a lot of moisture. but a good sleeping bag I got a zero degree one and I really like it it, it It's super lightweight and it's super small and that's the kind of thing just personal mentality that I'm just I'll, I'll throw it all out there. I'll invest in that upfront because I only hope to buy one of those my whole life. Cause just if you think about it that way, you get a quality one up front, and it's a one-time purchase. And then the other thing I bought you know, that I would I would never go back without is a good backpack. The first the first couple times I went out there, I had a, a a Tenzing like day pack, and it just it was not comfortable at all. It was not made to haul a load, and I ended up settling on a Kuyu pack. But there's a I mean any kind of any one of those like Mystery Ranch. Um, some of the other ones like Exo mountain gear and uh, I'm trying to think of the other one. Can't think of it off the top. Stone glacier, any one of those packs, like they're super, like <laughs> there's pros and cons to all of them, but they're all super good. And if you get one of those, you're not going to regret it. And I think it's, I think it's, it makes the difference between being miserable and, and actually having a good time because even if you pack super light, you might have 30 or 40 pounds in your back and having that weight distributed, well, you'll just be able to walk further. You'll have a better time. And in the end, when you are hopefully successful, you'll be able to pack it off the mountain and not break your back or pull something doing it. So um, I think those two pieces of gear are hundred percent essential. And then, you know, since then I've invested in other little things here and there, like, well, I, I should say this too. This is kind of a disclaimer because up front, I didn't buy a lot of gear because I had good friends that I, I could borrow gear from, which is something I also would encourage guys to do is if you're, if you're a hunter, you're surrounded by other people that have probably gone and done things like this, or you know, someone who, who has some of this gear and would be willing to loan you that. And so, you know, every year I've gone, I'll buy like one good new piece of gear and then borrow a couple of things. And I've just had people that were willing to let me borrow things until I could eventually save up and invest in, in the gear myself, which is super awesome and has helped me out a lot. And in fact, on that, the, the year I went to Utah last year, I was going to sight in my rifle the week before I left and I realized my scope was off and a really good friend of mine in Mississippi let me take his rifle. So I actually shot both those elk out there with his 270 And <laughs> I had bought. The week before, you know, and like having someone like that is willing to to do that is is, is an awesome thing. But it saved me 300 bucks having to buy a new scope and get it, you know, in that whole hassle at the last minute. But right. um, that's something that, that's, that has made it, I guess, more affordable for, for me getting into it. And uh, but right now, like my essential piece of gear would be that backpack, my sleeping bag, a good sleeping pad. Which you can get a decent one for 40 or 50 bucks. A nice, I have like a little inflatable one that rolls up real small. I would never camp again in my life without a sleeping pad. Um, <laughs> both from the comfort standpoint, but the, the big one that is that I never realized until I used it is the insulation standpoint in, in insulating you from the ground. Um, it's just, uh, it's a game changer. So I have that. And then of course backpacking stove, which you can get one of those pretty cheap that's not hundred percent essential. You can definitely eat cold meals. Um, and I have, but the backpacking stove is kind of nice. So really that's the kind of stuff that I think, you know, someone needs to go out there. So if you were looking at the price tag, you could get a really good sleeping bag for three or 400 bucks, which I know it's painful to even say that like, <laughs> that money? you know, I'm something that you're only going to sleep in five or 10 nights a year if you're lucky. But, it'll make all the difference and then the same amount on the pack or 500 bucks on the pack so that you know that's a pretty big price tag for those two things but they're like i said they're one-time purchases and then you're pretty good to go and besides that i I really think those are the biggest things you don't need a bunch of fancy camo and clothes to go out there the year we went to utah last year our last day in camp It was 10 degrees when we woke up that morning and it just snowed and it was like 30 mile an hour winds with gusts even higher. It was so cold, but I had a good sleeping bag to stay warm. I got out of my tent and I had just, uh, wool base layers, like black. I think they're black Ovis. They're not fancy Sitka base layers. You don't need that. Like just good wool base layers. And then I have some, I have like, um, the backpacking pants, lightweight backpacking pants that I wore over those. (laughs) and then a jacket. And that's, that's pretty much all I wore that whole trip. Cause most of the time out West you're moving around. So you don't need, you know, you don't need to go worry about dropping eight or $900 on a a new set of camo. Like that's, that's something you can definitely cut the budget with. Um, not, not worth worrying about.
1: Yeah. Right. I got a couple more questions just about the gear part and i'm gonna ask you both these at the same time so it kind of be a two-party question and i want to okay. i want to touch on the backpack you know was that a frame pack or just a regular backpack and also you mentioned the inflatable pad was that just like a a pad or was that uh like a inflatable mattress type to sleep on
2: yeah so the pack i had the kuyu i think it's ultra and then the 5,500 bag. So the way QU builds theirs, it is an external frame. Um, You buy the frame, then you buy the suspension system, which is like your waist belt and your shoulder straps. And then you can buy whatever size bag to go on it. And I had the 5,500 and I've packed, I think, six or seven days worth of food and everything in that. And it fit. You um, couldn't get many more days in that pack. But it's it's that all all I'd ever really want to get to, to, to pack in anyway, is that much that much food and, and clothes and everything. So that's pretty good size. But yeah, like all those brands I was talking about, they all sell those external frames. I would definitely go with the external frame in the reason being, which they all don't have this, but like the Kuyu one does. I know the Exo Mountain Gear packs do. Um, they have the ability to hold the meat. It's Called a, um, I think it's called a meat sling. It holds the meat so you don't have to just fill the bag up with meat. So if you fill the bag up with meat, it kind of pulls away from your back. It's sagging down and it's not held tight to your back, so the weight distribution is a little poor. But with with my cuju, it doesn't have a meat sling, but the bag comes like unattached from the frame, and it's made to do this so that you can put the meat right against the frame between the frame and the bag, and it cinches down super tight. And that keeps all that weight right on your back where you want it and super close to your body. And, in some of these other brands, if you look around, they'll have that same capability. So you put the meat this right up against your back. So, it's, you know, cause if it's, if it's off your back, any, that's just leverage pulling back on your shoulders, which now wear you out. And, uh, but it has the back, it has the, the, the bag on the back. So you can still have some gear in your bag if you want like your gear, which will be lighter than the meat. So that's the kind of bag that I'm using. And I also, I guess this is worth throwing in there. <clears throat> for anyone who has like shoulder injuries, stuff like that, I have um, nerve damage in one of my shoulders, which is actually why I got this bag, because I realized the, the one bag I had, if I had any amount of weight in it. I was just in so much pain that like the whole next day, I couldn't do much or even after hiking with it for about an hour. Or two, it happened actually one day scouting in Mississippi for for deer. I hiked an hour or two, and I was just in so much pain I had to stop. So I was like, well, you know, thinking it's probably worth investing in a good pack. And you know, for anyone out there in that same kind of boat, I I I don't have that problem anymore. I've packed sixty. Well, no, this this couple of weeks ago when we were in New Mexico, I think one one load was seventy or eighty pounds, and my shoulder was fine the whole time because it puts all that weight on your hips where it should be. So that's why like, I, I really stress or I would say, you know, invest in a good bag that puts all that weight on your hips. Cause that's where it should be and not pulling on your neck and your shoulders and the top of your back. Um, all those, all those bags I listed, all those brands sell that kind of bag. And, uh, so yeah, then the well, your, your other question about the pad, mine is, so they make different types of inflatable or they make different types of sleeping pads. Some of them are just insulated and they don't roll up very small. Some of them are insulated and then they also take air as well. So they kind of inflate, but then they still don't roll up, roll up super small because there's still some insulation. Mine is, mine is a sleeping pad, but it doesn't have any insulation. So it is kind of like, I guess to your question, it is kind of like a mattress, like an air mattress. It's only, two and a half feet wide and, you know, six, maybe six foot six long, but it rolls up to be only about three inches in diameter by six inches long. Like it's it's super small because it has no insulation, but it does a heck of a job insulating because that air is trapped in there. Kind of like a wetsuit would be or a dry suit where you have that insulation in between you and, you know, the
0: outside. So it works pretty good even though it's lightweight. Now, what, what did you guys do as far as, um, camping? Did y'all kind of set up a base camp like by your vehicles or did you hike out and set up a base camp or were you just strictly like bivy camping out of your backpacks?
2: So the first year when we went to Utah, we packed in I think right at four miles, set up our camp there. We went into a wilderness area actually. So you, so we kind of get away from all the side by sides and stuff because they're everywhere out west, and and it honestly kind of, it gets annoying when you've been hiking. You know, you're from the east, you don't have access to that, and you get out there and hike a couple miles, and someone roars past you on a trail. Um, so we were trying to avoid that. We went to this wilderness area, we hiked in, and we set up our camp, and we had tents that year. We set up tents, and so like the tent I had, which again, this is kind of back to my point, I borrowed a tent from a friend of mine. Uh, he, it was a two-person backpacking tent, and that was perfect for me and my gear because I could lay my rifle, in my backpack next to me inside, and get keep it out of the snow or whatever would happen at night, which I really liked. So that first year, it was a tent. When I go out shed hunting, oftentimes what we do is we take a—I just have like a, a cheap Walmart four-person tent—we just throw up next to the car, and that works pretty well. In a couple of times we've been out there, like when we went to Arizona mule deer hunting and it was snowing and it was, it snowed on us a couple of nights. And one night rained. We actually slept in the back of my car, which is kind of why I have that, that wrap for the way it is. It, it's big enough that I can stretch out in it, decent enough to sleep. So that, that's also kind of another option to to keep in mind if you're doing the truck camping and it does rain. But I'll be honest, like actually. This summer, I tried out a new method, which is sleeping in a hammock, and I love it so much. it's it's for me personally, so much more comfortable than any other type of camping I've ever done. And I've had a couple friends try it. In fact, in New Mexico, that's what we did the whole time because um, we flew out there. We flew into El Paso and we drove up to the Gila to to hunt, so we didn't have a lot of room and I don't have a backpack tent of my own. So we just we just hammock the whole time. so, every night we would throw up our hammocks and put a sleeping pad in it or not, and then put our sleeping bag in there. And I'll, I mean, I honestly sleep like a baby like that. I, it's the best night's sleep I've ever got while camping. Is it just hanging a hammock, which I know it's probably not for everybody. And I was skeptical doing it the first time, <laughs> but it, it works super well. And you can throw a hammock, like a lightweight hammock in your backpack and haul it. And it doesn't, It doesn't take much weight. It's not very bulky. And I I think it makes a great night's sleep. And then you know, the cool thing is it doesn't rain very often out west. So most of the time, that's not an issue. And then if it's warm, an advantage of the hammock is that there's a lot of airflow around you. So if it's warm, it can help keep you cool, which I usually have a problem being too warm at night. And then... The couple times where it's been cold and I've been in a hammock, what I found is you're in your sleeping bag and you'll still get cold on the bottom because your, your sleeping bag is compressed between your body and that, in that hammock and then there's all that airflow. So that's where if you have a sleeping pad, like I'm talking about and just slightly deflate it just a little bit so it can, it can kind of conform to the bag or conform to your hammock. It makes a really good insulation and I'll it's, like a little cocoon hanging up in a tree. I mean, it's super warm. And I, honestly, I slept in that now, you know, up to I think 70 or 80 degrees this summer and because of that extra airflow I was actually able to sleep well. And I, I highly recommend for anyone to try it if, if they thought they'd be interested in it because it, it can cut down in the weight, the amount of gear you have to take big time.
0: Yeah, I could definitely see where that would be a, a great lightweight option. So what? What else um, was on your gear list as far as being in your backpack um, besides you know the stuff we obvious stuff we've already talked about sleeping bag and um, backpacking stove you mentioned um, your pad what kind of other stuff and and of course food <laughs> but what what yeah. kind of stuff was on your gear list that might get overlooked I guess so one of
2: the, you know one of the big things I think about of course is water and the first year. In Utah, we were in high country, we are at a little over 10,000 feet and there was running water, which was nice because it was real green forest, real thick forest. And then this this year in New Mexico, there was not much water. We had to drive every night to go to a creek to get water. But in both of the situations, we had to treat the water. And what I've ended up using is just the iodine tablets to treat the water. And I know guys that like to use the filters and all. I actually had some friends with the filter in Utah that their filters froze because it would get so cold at night and they broke. So that's, yes. that could be, that could be one drawback to that. But I think if you get all the water out of it, you would be fine. <clears throat> so that's something to, to think about. The iodine tablets are super light and they're super small. And if you can get over the flavor, you're fine. And honestly, if you're, if you're working hard out there, you'll be sweating and and you'll be thirsty enough that you would probably drink anything. (laughs) So that's, that's what I use. And and I, I'll get the little flavor packets, the like, um, energy flavor packets and put one of those in there and it's gone. You know, cause it, it it tastes pretty good. So that's how, that's how I've done the water thing. Besides that, you know, I'm trying to think of the things to carry. I, I of course, I download my Onyx maps on my phone. And so I have... That's what I use. And and I have a mobile charging bank for my phone. But then I always have a backup because you you don't want to just count on your phone and that the whole time. And something could go wrong for sure. So I've taken like a surface map or usually just a GPS just to have a backup uh, for something or a compass. In fact, when we went to Utah, I think I took every single one of those I listed. (laughs) Because <laughs> we were we were going way back in there. We were a little worried. Um, so we had all that kind of stuff. But besides that, a first aid kit and dry bags, just to keep my clothes in, just you know to keep moisture out of them and that kind of thing. But I think that pretty much covers it, you know, up to food, which you know, food's an interesting topic that I think it would be different for everybody because obviously we all have our own preferences, but I've kind of. I've come to learn. So the first time that I went out there, first two times I went, I took like two to two thousand to twenty five hundred calories, like what I would normally eat about neighborhood probably normally eat in a regular day at home, and that's that was the neighborhood amount of food I had in in backpacking foods. And by the third day on each of those trips, I was so worn out and just pooped. I just did not feel like going on. And I finally did some reading and research, and you know, kind of. Dived into how much you should be eating. And you gotta really increase your calorie intake. So what I try to do now is I shoot for about thirty three to thirty five hundred calories a day when I'm out there. And and I'll take foods for that and I'll be honest, like I normally can't quite eat all of it. Normally there'll be, you know, a candy bar left or a, a granola bar or something. But I eat almost all that food. And every single time when I get back, I've lost it. Weight, like even though I'm just eating constantly, you know, it's something you don't anticipate, but it's a real, it can be a real holdback if you don't have enough food to keep your energy up. And you won't realize that the first day it happens, but about the second or third day that you haven't eaten enough food, you'll really start to drag. And so it's really, I I, have found that I enjoy the whole, my whole time there a lot better and I'm more productive if I have. A, just plenty of food. So I take a lot of food and my general day, like for to to think it through or to talk it through, my general day, I usually start with I'll take two packs of like the instant oatmeal and I put them in a little sandwich Ziploc with a scoop of protein powder and that will get me up to like 600 calories to start out and then I'll have granola, uh like granola bars, several different types of granola bars. I usually have a bunch of trail mix. Um I like to take like a pack of tuna, like the, the little foil packs of tuna and a little pack, a little tub of peanut butter. And the peanut butter, of course, has a lot of fat in it, which fat is super important for, it's super important for like endurance activities. So when you're just walking a lot and burning a lot of calories, you want a high fat diet. So I have those, that peanut butter for that, as well as the protein or the, the, the trail mix I have, I'll buy a lot of almonds to put in there, which has a lot of good fat in it. Um, cause it's just hard to get fat, you know, living out of a bag, right? With, 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 with dry food that is, is preserved. And then, and another thing I've added to that recently is cheese, like a little stick of cheese. And so that's kind of the, the, the kind of stuff I'm eating all through the day. And then at night, I'll have a, a freeze dried meal, um, to finish out the day. And so. That's kind of what I settle on, it works for me. And it, it's pretty cheap overall, the, the the freeze-dried meal is where they get you. You know That will cost you eight to 10 bucks, generally for that one meal. So that can be a real cost when you're thinking about multiple days. <clears throat> but I think food is something that you definitely, honestly, of all the gear items, like you want to have your gear, but food is the one you really have to have planned out. And I just have a gallon Ziploc for every day. If I'm going for five days, I have five gallon ziplocks. And that way, you know, if we hike into camp and we can leave all, all our gear there, I just take one of those every day because you get back to camp at sunset, all you can think about is going to sleep. I always put in a, you know, I take out my old one full of trash, set it to the side and I put in a fresh one and I'm good to go the next day. And that system seems to work pretty well for me. It kind of cuts down the work and the amount of thinking I have to do when I'm out there.
1: Man, I'm glad you touched on the, the food there, Mariah, because you know, you're talking about all the food intake intake and taking stuff. And for the listeners, you know, they may be thinking, well, I'll just take some potato chips and some (laughs) Snickers bars and all that. But really, that's not the kind of food you want to be taking in. You want to be taking in healthy with the fat and the protein and, you know, the healthy carbs and stuff like that. But also with the food, what would you say as far as I know you talked about water a little bit, but what would you say your average water intake was per day? Like what, what should a guy be prepared for on drinking water? Not, not just the iodine tablets and stuff, but as far as like, Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of container should they bring to be able to carry that water? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I, so I usually take
2: a hydration bladder, but more and more I don't use it. I, I, I really like the hydration bladder for shed hunting because I'm, I walk all day with my pack on it, it, never comes off. And if I, if I don't have that, I tend to not drink water when I should. So that can, that I guess that's something to keep in mind. If you like a hydration bladder, that's a good way to store water. Mine is three liters so that I can hold a good bit of water there. And then I always have an algae bottle with me and that's you, normally what I drink out of. And so like with the, the tablets, I think it's two tablets to my Nalgene, and then I have to wait 30 minutes before I can drink it. And I might do that three times a day, something like that. Um, probably probably in the neighborhood of three. And honestly, you probably should do it more often. It's just... Uh, you're doing good. If you you got to kind of keep yourself drinking, especially when it's super cold outside. It's not, it's not a high priority. So that's why... I actually like those little flavor packets because if I put that in there and I like make up some lemonade or something, I'm more likely to sit there and sip on it, at least if I'm maybe sitting glassing or, or whatever. It'll kind of keep me drinking it and that'll that'll make me drink. But the Nalgene bottle is super was super helpful when it was really cold because it would freeze. Um and so having that wide mouth, I could kind of bust it open. So like the night I killed my bull and cow that evening, I, I spent three or four hours there just working on processing those, those, uh, L can kind of get them the meat squared away. And at one point I remember very vividly this, you know, I had to wait 30 minutes to drink the water. So I, I walked over to the, there was a little stream running through the meadow. I walked over there and filled up my Nalgene and set it down, put my, my tablet in there came back 30 minutes later and it was frozen over, you know, because it, it was back holes. I had to bust it open and it could drink. But if it had been a narrow mouth gene, I don't know how, how I would have been able to do it. You know, um, that ice would have built up more. So that's something to consider. And another thing on that same note is that with all that freezing, you get water in the threads of your bottle and it freezes. And that can be an issue on closing it as well as if you're using a hydration bladder You've got to be very mindful that especially as it starts getting later in the day, that every time you finish drinking, you blow the water back into the, into the reservoir. Cause it stays pretty warm enough in, in that pack. It will stay for the most part insulated enough to not freeze, but that hose running down your shoulder strap will freeze. And when that happens, even if it doesn't bust, then you got to wait until, you know, midday the next morning. The the next day before it thaws out enough, you can drink out of it. So that, that's, you know, then your water's there, but you can't get to it. So (laughs) you kind of have to, you kind of have to, I don't know. It's, it's cool because it's like you're, you're, it's you against the elements, but not in an extreme way, but it's just like you, you kind of have to take a little bit more thoughtful approach to everyday things that you take for granted just to make sure that that will be there for you and that you're, you're able to keep functioning.
0: Is there anything you took with you on that first initial hunt that, that you later decided, well, that was, you know, that was a waste of space in my pack. I didn't, I didn't really need it. Underwear.
2: <laughs> underwear. <laughs> really and underwear and an extra shirt. So and this has been a pretty common theme every time I've gone hunting. It's like, especially when it's cold, you might take a couple changes to underwear. Say you take two or three for a six day hunt. At the end of the day, as, as nasty as it sounds, the last thing you want to do is strip down to change your underwear. So you just keep using, you know, you keep using the same base layers or whatever it is, socks. So I, honestly, clothing at the end of at the end of it all has been the thing that every time I go, I take less of. Because like the first time I'm going, I'm taking my wool jacket or my, my fleece jacket. I'm taking all my base layers. Like I got wool base layers and synthetic ones. I'm taking extra pairs of pants, you know, that's actually, I think I packed in two pairs of like an extra a change of pants into our elk camp, you know, four miles in. And at the end of the time, like, it didn't matter if my pants were dirty, right? I wasn't trying to impress anybody. I wasn't <laughs> yeah. to school. so I think, you know, is a, is a kind of a packing list for clothes. And this is what I've really whittled down. If I was going to hunt for, let's say a maximum of five days. Cause maybe after five days I would have to, to change my approach, but I would have on the pair of underwear I'm wearing three pairs of socks with me. So the pair I'm wearing and then two to change into. Cause so I think that's the biggest thing that you, you definitely don't want to skimp on is a good, good wool socks and then my base layers and then outer shell layers. And then that would be it. No, you know, no second guessing and taking all this extra stuff. Um, it just ends up weighing down your pack. and And like at the end of the day, what is an extra shirt to carry in? Maybe it's worth it just to have at camp. Um, But that has been something that I personally have kind of whittled down more and more and that I just don't need. But my, my kind of go to with the socks is I'll have a pair I start out with and then midday I'll change. And then the ones I was wearing early get to air out all day. Like I'll tie them to the back of my pack or something. And by the time I go to sleep, they're pretty well dried out. Then the ones I took off at night, I hang up in my tent and they don't go with me the next day. And then I have two dry pairs for the next day to do the same thing. And so there's always, I would leave one pair in my tent to dry out while I'm gone all day and then kind of cycle through. But I always try to change my socks at least once a day, just be, from a comfort standpoint, because my feet sweat a little bit and a lot of people's do It's some, some more than others. My feet sweat enough that after I've been hiking, you know, by midday, I'm ready to change my socks, and that wool does a good job of wicking that moisture away, but you don't want to build up in the socks so much that you start building up a lot of moisture in your boots, because that can really spell trouble like a day or two into your hunt. So that's kind of been my approach. And then the other thing is just um I'm trying to think of the, the name of the the brand, but it's basically a the tape that you would put, like the athletic tape that you would put on yourself if you're getting a blister. And that kind of stuff, like I think my first or second day in New Mexico this year, I started to get a hot spot on the back of one of my heels and I double taped it and I was good to roll the rest of the time and like it, it it never was an issue to slow me down. So having moleskin or any kind of protective skin layer, you know, bandage um, to put on your feet because... It's not a question of if it's when, you know, that you'll develop some sore spots on your feet. The, the biggest thing is as soon as you feel it, you stop, air out your feet, put that tape on there to pad it and then keep going right, you know, do that right away. Cause if even letting that run for an hour or two, you'll start to build up a blister and in, in those issues. So, you know, that'd be something I guess I'd add back to my gear list that i would excluded earlier. All
1: uh, right, Mariah. So this question, I don't think I'd ever thought I would ask this on a podcast and Brian Brian may end up adding this out, but you, you mentioned underwear (laughs) and I I think for most public land guys that walk a lot of miles during the day, you start sweating. Everybody knows what starts to happen. So was that more like a, a boxer type underwear or like a, something that was compression type, you know, to keep you from, chafing in your legs and stuff because when you start walking a lot of miles, you start sweating. That that could be an issue as well. Kind of like a kind of like a blister, you know, on your feet. You start getting that raw feeling, it starts hurting and then it makes it hard to walk. So I'm just curious, you know, what you found to be the best there because the last thing you want to do is get five miles deep in the mountains and then you can't walk.
0: (laughs) Right.
2: Right. And that's a very I mean that can that can put you out of business even more than than feet sometimes uh if you're you start chafing. And so really in, in so like in Utah it wasn't a problem, but a couple weeks ago in New Mexico it would be a high of like eighty degrees during the day, eighty-five. And that was an issue. And so actually what I found, which I kind of I learned this from someone in, in in uh wildlife doing field work who at some point mentioned to me that this was a way to to you know not have the chafing problem. So normally what I was using out there was boxer briefs and I don't know if compression shorts would fix that problem or not, but what I have found, and I tested it out this summer, I, um, a very hot day, I was hiking in South Dakota, and I had this issue. If you just take off your underwear and hike, and so I, like what I'm using are those uh, like lightweight backpacking uh, back pants, like the kind of breathable air can can blow through them, especially you know if it's a warmer hunt. But I'll just get rid of my underwear all, you know, all the way completely. And I I honestly feel like that fixes the issue because I think a lot of times that shaving is, is really just because of the seams and the underwear and, and it probably being made out of a poor quality material. You know, I've never bought a $40 pair of underwear from first slider (laughs) sticker or something. I can't bring myself to do it. And maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation if I, you know, if, if, if I had, but. Maybe that maybe having wool underwear would fix that. I, I don't know, but I I found that just kind of getting rid of them. I, I've tried it a few times and it's worked every time.
0: What about the uh, the the physical side of the hunt? How did you prepare leading up to to this first elk hunt for the physical aspect of it?
2: I every time I've gone, I've kind of been at a different level of the amount of preparation I put into it, but this like this spring before i went shed hunting and then again this fall before going to new mexico to hunt i think i settled on what i enjoy doing the, the most and what i think is the most helpful is, is really just rucking with a heavy pack and you know like i, I work out regularly just on a general basis just to to, to stay in decent shape but nothing crazy and I'm I'm also not the type to be like, oh, I want to get in like crazy shape to go elk hunting. Like I just really want to be functional. Like I, I just don't want to be held back, I guess, by the level of you know, my level of preparation physically. So I haven't done any like crazy workouts or anything like that, these um like long workouts. But what I have done is just load up that pack and hike with it. And I really enjoy that because especially in summer, if I'm doing like office work all day. You know, I'll I'll finish up an the afternoon. There's still a couple hours of daylight. Like I just love to go hike. You know, just do a, an evening hike. So it works well for me, just in, in what I enjoy. And so, like this year for this New Mexico hunt, I, I what I did is I um I had my qu pack and I went and I bought a fifty pound bag of salt from the local co op and put it on my pack and hiked with it. And most days I do like a thirty minute hike starting out. If I had more time, I would do an hour hike and try to hit some hills, you know? And then when I felt like I was doing decent with that, then I put on another bag. So I had a hundred pounds and then that was really tough for me. So I had to shorten my hiking to like 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And I did that for a while. So again, I could do an hour or and I think one day, an hour and a half doing that. And like, I was worn slap out after that day, <laughs> and that was an hour and a half with that. But like, I enjoy overall, you know, it's 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 a fun way to get your exercise versus like going to the gym and and doing this or that. Like, and I really do believe in the end, you're getting the most bang for your buck. Like, yes, being in the overall, overall great shape has its benefits. You know, if you're trying to lift heavy loads on your back and stuff like doing deadlifts and all, you know, squats and all this kind of stuff would be helpful. But at the end of the day, if you can put on a heavy pack and carry it for miles on end and not... Crumble like that's really where that's that's really going to be the breaking point possibly in a hunt like that. So I, I you know, it, and so I, I feel like it's helpful uh, for me. And so obviously the hundred pounds, like I'm not planning to pack a hundred pounds out west, but also in Indiana I can't find mountains big enough <laughs> or you know elevation to really replicate what I'm going to see out west. So the hundred pounds is like it's a little bit heavier. And it helps me, you know, compensate for some of the other things I'm missing in my workout. So um, being able to carry that comfortably, you know, overall, I really think is really good for your lungs, your back, you know, your legs. And, and honestly, at the end, I think where I feel it the most is my core, especially my sides and somewhat in my stomach, but mostly in my sides. I it is really incredible how much. I felt like that, that was a good workout for, for my core. Um, and it wasn't because I was doing, you know, sit ups and crunches and stuff like that. It's because you work your core very hard when you have hundred pounds in your back and you're trying to steady it on every single step. Um, it's something that you could easily miss in the gym if all you're doing is working out legs, you know, and arms and back and stuff like that. So I, I think overall that kind of workout where you're just really stressing super hard The kind of work you're going to be doing in the moment is is really the best thing to do.
0: Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't hurt to be young guy in good shape already too. So I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure my workout regimen would have to be a little, <laughs> a little more strict leading up to, uh, to my out cut. Uh, but, but yeah, that's, that's good, good stuff. Now, what about, did you, um, How were you impacted by the effect of altitude on that first hunt? Was you prepared for that? I felt it mostly as
2: a headache. And yeah, I say that really a headache and then of course, shortness of breath, (laughs) the headache kind of went away after a while. But the, the craziest thing is I actually felt shortness of breath the most at night when I would lay down on my back, when I lay down in bed, <clears throat> I could not catch my breath in bed for the first ten or fifteen minutes, which is just a, a really weird feeling. And I've talked to other people that you know have been at high altitudes, and that's a, a common thing. I think it's something about the, you know laying down your rib cage, your diaphragm, how it's all sitting. It makes it tougher to breathe. Um It's not in any way inhibiting you from performing well. You know when you're laying in bed, like, but it can it can keep you from sleeping at least at first. Overall, though. The elevation, you know, that first time we were at 10,500, I did feel it, and it just amounted to me having to stop much more often than I would like to admit, and I didn't catch my breath, you know, but I think they say it's three days, it takes three days to acclimate to the to the elevation, something like that, so you eventually get back to your level of performance, but that first day or two, you, you just... You know, I'll hit it super hard and like really get, get myself out of breath and all, but you, you know, at some point you have to stop and catch your breath and just understand you're, you're struggling physically because of the air, um, and <clears throat> the elevation you're at. So after a few days, it does seem to subside. And so I, I really feel like you, normally on a, on a trip like that, on my third or fourth day, I really start hitting my stride again. And you know, as long as I've been eating enough, again, that's really the, the key that I found for me. I'm eating enough that third or fourth day. I start to really feel I get, you know, as long as I hadn't worn
0: myself out, like I have good energy and I can, I can do pretty much whatever I'd be doing back home as far as climbing and and endurance. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's really no way to prepare for that, is there? I mean, I, I haven't, I haven't heard of any way to, to really prepare yourself for altitude short of just getting out there in it. Yeah, I don't think, I think there's some
2: contraptions and stuff they come up with, but they're not, in the end, there is nothing like the real thing.
0: All right, guys, that wraps up the first part of our interview with uh, Mariah Boggess. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that and got as much out of it as I did. Uh, like I mentioned before, I know I, I took close to a page of notes um, just when we were talking about the, the gear and the uh, um, the food and, and all that kind of stuff um, just a lot of great information again for somebody planning a, a western trip so i uh, hope you guys enjoyed that i know like i said it's a, something a little different than what we've done but you know we want to try to do that we want to try to reach um, a broader audience we love the public land thing and we'll definitely keep doing that but uh, we know not everybody out there is a hardcore public land hunter and so we want to just kind of cover the bases and and do a little more Uh, Mix things up a little bit with some different type of hunting topics like that. And hopefully you guys won't mind that and uh, keep sticking around. Um, And again, yeah, we'll be doing part two. Hopefully that'll be next week uh, as long as everything works out with getting back with Mariah. And then we're going to try to get another um, another rut report in there uh, coming up as well. So I know those seem to be going over uh, very well. You guys seem to like that. At least that's the feedback we're getting has all been pretty positive on, on the rut reports and uh, those get seem to get more downloads than any of our other episodes. So that's cool. Uh, We definitely want to keep doing those, um, you know, as the, as the season progresses. And um, I guess with that, I know we got a couple, uh, a couple new reviews this week. Oh yeah. And
1: uh, yeah, I'll, I'll turn those over to you. Uh, Yeah. So we did. And uh, the first one is from M brook 63. And it's titled Rut Reports, a five-star review. It says I enjoy listening to the Rut Reports so I can compare to what I'm seeing in my area. S- says he ran into you at a very low pressure WMA during bow season, and he thought that was pretty cool. And says that he had some success this weekend, and then ha- that was on Halloween, and shot his biggest buck to date, a seven-pointer with a 17 and a half inch spread. Thanks for what y'all do. So big congratulations on that. uh, Biggest buck to date. That's awesome. So hopefully some of the, the tips and stuff that we share and the guys we have on led to that. That's what we hope. But either way, if it didn't, (laughs) <laughs> congratulations on uh and taking we'll, your biggest buck today
0: we'll, we'll just keep those low pressure w mays on the down low though that's <laughs> right that's right yeah don't,
1: don't, don't be sharing those <laughs> and then uh the second one comes from the flaky one <laughs> oh, there you and go and it, it's titled public land tips another five star review it says i'm 73 been about hunting for almost 50 years and the group that he hunts with just lost their 350 acre lease to a developer. So been hunting public land for the very first time says old dog learned a few new tricks from this podcast and says, have a backup stand or blind in case somebody takes your favorite spot. And there's no reason to take engineering tape to the woods. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Every (laughs) every time I see a piece, I take it down when scouting. So yeah, we're right there with, uh, I tore down quite a few this past weekend. And then just put a climber in this morning for the WMA, which is a week long bow hunt, and it's about thirty yards from an active scrape. So they are out there. Great podcast. I wish the two uh, co-hosts would do some more solo reports without guests instead of apologizing for not having one. Five stars, guys. <laughs> How much so. you pay that guy, Robert? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we we really appreciate it. We're yeah. really we really appreciate it when the. Uh, You enjoy me and Brian chit chatting back and forth. Um, We try to do the best we can, but we also know everybody likes to guest as well, but we appreciate the great feedback from everybody that we've gotten so far. And as always, if you haven't, please go out, leave us a rating or review just like these people have. As we always mention, it helps us tremendously grow and uh, helps us grow in the ratings, helps new people find us when they're searching for a podcast. So please go out and do that. And if you haven't yet, just share it with a family or friend that may enjoy it may enjoy listening to us and hopefully be able to learn a few things. So that's, that's all I got, bro. That's right, man. Just, yeah, I just want to reiterate a
0: big thanks to all you guys who are listening and, you know, downloading the podcast, telling your friends about it, leaving ratings, reviews, all that stuff, man. Uh, it means a lot to us. So big, big thanks to everybody for that. And I guess with that, uh, we'll wrap this one up. And as always guys, Hunt safe, shoot straight, and most importantly, just enjoy your time out there in God's great outdoors. And we'll see you here next week.